0: You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardagusta.org. Yeah, excited, man. If we haven't met, my name is Roger Otero. I'm the associate pastor here. Super duper excited today to be continuing um, our sermon series, Fresh Reformation. We're in week four. Um, Let me get this laid out correctly. Read mode. There we go. Um, So I've got a message for you today entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. And I was only mildly disappointed this morning when when I walked in. And uh, Charles, who puts the slides together for us, he's like, oh man, that sermon title. He's like, did you get that from, uh, from Independence Day? That was on the other night. And I went. And I said, like, no, it's from the R.E.M. song. And he's like, oh, yeah, that song was in the movie. And I was like, oh, okay, there you go. Um, now, I did, I did have this whole plan. I was going to, like, sing part of it with you. You guys know this song. Even if you're not an R.E.M. F- fan, you kind of know the song. Um, but I've been, like, super sick this week. So my singing voice is not there. So half of you are like, phew. You don't have to, like, sing a song. But you know how it goes, right? That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Bird, snakes, an airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. And then you just kind of mumble for, like, two minutes. And then you're like, and then you're like, you know, feeling pretty psyched. It's the end of the world as we know it, right? Now, but question for you, seriously, like, does it feel to you sometimes, like the world as we know it is ending, right? Now, I have a feeling, and REM wrote this song in '87, and it felt the same in '87, right? So I don't know that a whole lot has really changed. And when you think about that possibility. Like, just take note in yourself, right, a little self-inventory, how does that make you feel, right? When you consider the, the world as you know it kind of seeming like it's ending all around you, what's, what's your general kind of, like, inward response, right? Do you, fear, do you feel fearful? Do you feel sad? Do you feel some level of anxiety? Um, or, or do you feel fine, right? Do you feel fine? Um, what I'm here to pitch to you guys today is this idea that the, the good news is that in Christ, the end of the world as we know it is here, which is cause for us to feel way more than fine. Amen. This is good stuff. Um, so before we read some scripture today, I want you pray with me. And we just, we just want to open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit. We want him to speak to us through the scriptures today. So God, we pause once again to pray and we thank you for your presence. God, I thank you that even just this morning, I've sensed your presence in this building just through the laughter of people, through the greetings, through prayers I've already seen happen, through folks I've heard checking in on one another, through meeting new people, through getting coffee, through all the things that have gone on. Um, God, I thank you that I've already sensed your presence here. And we just ask for a continued impartation of your spirit that we might hear you. Lord, I pray that you would just give me the gift of teaching this morning, that these words would be anointed by your spirit. I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we're in the book of Ephesians. I hope you've been enjoying this series so far. I hope you're reading along with us. I encourage you guys to read along week by week. Uh, This week we're in the second half of chapter 2. So we're we're making some progress here. Second half of chapter 2. Jumping into verse 11. Here we go. Therefore, because of all the stuff that Reese talked about last week, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, here's the question I want to start off with today is, what is the world as we know it like? I messed with the grammar of that sentence like three times this week. I think that's right. What is the world as we know it Like? And let me say this straight out the gate. Uh, I'm, not trying, I'm not interested in painting some picture of doom and gloom here this morning. It's definitely worth saying right out the gate that there is just a lot of beauty and goodness in the world. All right? There is so much to be thankful for. There's so much in God's good creation for us to enjoy. There are so many wonderful, good-hearted, kind people in this world doing good work, Christian and not. There's a lot to celebrate. Um, but, but in our two verses today, the first two verses... Paul draws our attention to an aspect of human society that is not beautiful or good. It was not beautiful or good in his time that he was writing to almost 2,000 years ago, and I think we'll see hints of how it's not necessarily beautiful or good in our world today. And here's the first thing that Paul points out, is that the world as we know it is polarized. The world as we know it, is polarized. Um, again, we'll back up to verse eleven. He says, "Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands." I got to tell you right now, right at the gate, there's nothing that excites a pastor more to know that he gets to preach on circumcision. <laughs> Said no pastor ever, right? But here's what's going on here. By polarization, I mean an attitude that is us versus them, right? This us versus them kind of mindset. mindset, And it's evidenced in this text through this idea of one group calling themselves circumcision and the other group, and them referring to the other group as the uncircumcision, the uncircumcised. Now, super brief overview. I don't assume that all of you know even what I'm talking about. We may be somewhat familiar with the way, if you've had a baby boy, you know what this is, right? At least in Western culture, it's dominantly still like a practice that happens. Um, Google that later if you're not sure what it is. Or maybe don't Google it. I don't know. Um, now, there's more going on here, though, right? When it comes to the Bible and when it comes to God's people in Israel, there's a bit more going on. If you go back and you read Genesis 17, God is trying to create, he's trying to, we have got all the humanity of people uh, on planet Earth, he's trying to create a unique people that was that will be his people through whom his blessings can then flow out into all of creation, right? But he's got to make a unique people first. So... Um, He calls a man named Abram. He calls him to come out from among his people. He promised that if Abram would follow him faithfully, that God would then make his descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. Abram falls down and before God in reverence, he says, I'm in. God changes his name to Abraham and promises to give him a certain area of land for his people. And then after Abraham says, yes, God says, okay, now here's what I want you to do. As a sign of loyalty to this covenant relationship, that I'm making with you and all your descendants. Um, every male in your family has got to be circumcised when, they were, when they're eight days old. And at this point, I'm really sure, Abraham's a little bit like, wait, what's circumcision? Right, it, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't like a normal thing that people did. So he's like, okay, when they're all eight years old. But of course, then the kicker is God's like, well, that means like you, even though you're like almost 100 and like everybody else who's older. So they were all a really unhappy bunch of dudes for a little while there because they had to do it right away. Um, but again, we, we don't have a whole lot of time for this, but uh, the whys behind it is, is the big picture is that this was at least a serious business when it comes to the covenant between Abraham's people and Yahweh, right? This was, this was important for them to have a physical distinctiveness from all the other peoples around them right? It was not common for practice for other people to do it. They would do it. It was important to, for them to set themselves apart as being, we are different from all of you. We are separate and distinct and set apart for this one God, which is good as far as it goes, right? Distinctiveness in and of itself is not a bad thing. Them to have their own personal identity, and in some ways that might be very visible, um, is not necessarily a bad thing. But what was intended, <clears throat> What was intended as a simple distinctive ends up becoming fuel for polarization, right? You read through the whole rest of the Bible, and this is what happens. It becomes an us-them kind of mindset to where by the time we get to Paul's day, for Jews to refer to themselves as the circumcision, which I, can't, I just still can't imagine that being a brag, <laughs> things you say. You know, religious people get weird. So for them in Paul's day to refer to themselves as the circumcision was akin to like national pride, right? And for them to call someone else the uncircumcision was like a derogatory cutdown. It was really almost like a racial slur because there was, there was racial stuff related to this. This was, this was the Jewish people of the day looking at everyone else in the world around them, all the Gentiles, and saying, you're not one of us. Right You have your way, we have ours. You're, you people have your own way of life. We have our own way of life. You're on the outside. We're on the inside. Now, according to Paul, God through Jesus was greatly interested in destroying this polarization, right, which we'll get to in just a minute. But of course, it's not just a problem that, that, that they had in the past, but polarization is a current problem. Are you guys familiar with this? Right? Anybody anybody witnessed any polarization lately? Anybody been on Facebook in like the last how long I've been talking 9 minutes? Right? It's there. This is not this is not a Jewish gentile problem. This is a human being problem. Um, I just recently, interestingly, this week, I finished a book called The Power of Bad. Anybody familiar with this book? Highly recommend it. I think it came out in like 2019 or something. If you feel like you're struggling with a lot of negativity and and influence of negative thoughts and things in yourself or in the world around you, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. Um, Towards the end of the book, though, um, just yesterday, I read this. Most Americans remain moderate in their political views... And public opinion surveys show that their views haven't really changed much in recent decades. There has been a change, right? The middle is kind of shrinking and the the polarization is increasing, but not as much as we think. The big change, a marked polarization of opinion, has occurred not among the citizenry, but among what social scientists call the political class, which encompasses most of the crisis industry. Hold that thought. Crisis industry. The legislators, political activists, campaign contributors, journalists, lobbyists, and scholars who battle over public policy. They're the ones who are having this major um, shift in this marked polarization in opinions. It goes on to say they're the ones segregating themselves at opposite ends of the political spectrum and trying to drag the rest of the country along. Do you guys feel the pull of that tide sometimes? It's intentional. There is a crisis industry. There is money to be made off of you in that. Goes on. Their vicious battling has created a widespread sense of false polarization, as the political scientist Morris Verena calls it. The typical Democratic and Republican voters accurately consider themselves moderate. How many of you guys, you could raise your hands. Would you consider yourself moderate? I know how I vote, but I think I'm fairly moderate. I mean, you kind of got to go one way or the other, Right. The typical Democratic and Republican voters accurately consider themselves moderate, but they inaccurately believe that voters in the other party have become dangerously extreme. So they feel increasingly antagonistic towards the other side. Guys, there is a crisis industry making big bucks off of polarizing you from other people. You, who are probably, I mean, I know most of you, like, if we've talked about this at all, you're probably fairly moderate. You have your opinions, and they might be similar to mine or different than mine. doesn't matter, right? Not all that extreme. But there are powers and entities trying to make big bucks off of making sure that you feel like you're kind of moderate, but everybody else is crazy. Meanwhile, those people are also convinced that they're pretty moderate, and you're crazy. This polarization is a powerful, powerful force. And an easy way to identify polarization is just consider the use of labels, right? It always involves labels. The circumcision, the uncircumcision. Republican, Democrat. Conservative, liberal. Black, white. Citizen, immigrant. Pro-choice, pro-life. I don't even need to go on, right? That we instantly... Right? If I didn't name a couple of those and you didn't feel some kind of like, oh, kind of thing, then you're probably doing pretty good. right? If you felt a little something in any of those or if you think about others and you feel that tension, it's just because that's the water we swim in. Any, any kind of titles like this, any kind of labels that contributes to an us-them division. The problem with polarization is not that we have differing viewpoints or values. That's actually Okay. The problem is when we tend to use those to feed an increasingly negative view of the other. If it causes us to think nothing but negative thoughts about whoever the other is, then we have a problem. So the world is polarized, the first thing that Paul says, the world is polarized and exclusionary. This kind of feeds directly out of polarization. We're getting to good news in a minute, I promise. He goes on in verse 12, remember that at that time you, and he's talking to Gentiles, this is important to grasp, right? The uncircumcision, right? Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to come into the promise without hope and without God in the world. The us, them mindset leads to a protective what's mine is mine stance, right? And again, we see this in American society so hard these days. What's mine is mine. Nobody can take it. I'll protect it at all costs. And according to the tenets of Judaism, and and really, I think at least as well as anyone could have understood the scriptures at that time, um, the people of Israel had an exclusive claim on the promises of God, right? They just kind of did. If you read most of the New Testament, now, there were definitely hints all through the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, that God's ultimate plan was much, much bigger than Israel, right? Right? But you had to look a little closer for those things. But the people of Israel had an exclusive claim on the promises of God. So therefore, the Gentiles, everyone else in the world who was not born Jewish, was on the outside. Us, them, this is ours. We have these promises. You do not. Right? It's this attitude that looks at the other and says, you can't have what we have. No. You cannot have what we have. The Messiah, he's not yours. Uh, citizenship among us, God's people, denied. The the covenant of God's promises, the, the promises aren't for you. Hope, can't have it. God himself, you might as well be atheists, right? Actually, the Greek word in this without God is actually where we get our word atheist. It was this imposed, nope, you are different than us. You cannot have what we have The world as we understand it, the world as we know it, is polarized and exclusionary. Which leads me to the next question, then. If that's what the world is like, as Paul, I mean, there's just two descriptors. There's a lot more, but those are the two Paul points out. Um, How is the world as we know it ending? Right? If this is the world as we know it, how then is it ending? Um, Can I tell you guys in one word? Christ. The way that the world is ending. Began with Christ it is continuing until the very end and is completed. Um, Christ is the Greek word for the Jewish Messiah, right? Mashiach. He is the, the, the savior, the liberator figure in Jewish eschatology who would one day redeem Israel from all of their oppressors and who would rule over them as like this ultimate priest king, right? They would be totally free to live as God's people. And what Paul is saying is that this Christ came not just for Israel, but for the whole world. In verse 13, these might be the five most pivotal words in this entire chapter, maybe even in the book, definitely maybe five of the most pivotal words in any of our lives, but now in Christ Jesus. Right? Here's Here's the way the world is as we know it. But now in Christ Jesus. The turning point of everything in human history hangs on those five words. In the big picture, in the communal picture, in the picture of our lives, my life has that moment, right? But now in Christ Jesus, the arrival of Christ was the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. This is good news. The world used to be one way, but it's going to be another way now. And let me just say, for you guys individually, I don't take for granted that in this room this morning or listening online, watching on Facebook, I don't, I don't take for granted that everyone has had that moment. And if you're tired of the way that your life has been, if you see your life as polarized and exclusionary and you would add a whole bunch of other like, like negative adjectives to that list as well and you're, you know you're sick of it all and you've never had that but in Christ Jesus moment, Like, we'd love to invite you to that today. It's really simple. It's as simple as just giving up. It's as simple as giving up, putting your trust in yourself or in all the other forces of this world and entrusting Jesus. And when we have some prayer ministry time today, I know some of our prayer ministry team would love to, to walk you through that and to pray with you through that. So the world as we know it is polarized and exclusionary. So Christ came to form a single new humanity. This is mind-blowing. This, this gets me up in the morning, guys. Listen to what Paul says here. Why did Christ come then, right? If you believe that the gospel is that Christ came so that you could go to heaven when you die, you're missing the bigger picture. This is so much richer than that. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose, listen to this, guys. This is, this is about as clear as the Bible can get sometimes. His purpose was, right? What's God's purposes in the world? Well, I mean, here you go. He's spelling it out. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's one of my favorite phrases. Right? It's it's like God is like, oh, you can be hostile? I can be more hostile to your hostility. You think you can wreck violence? I can do violence to your violence. Right? Made the two groups one. One new humanity out of the two. Guys, what if we just prayed that kind of prayer over our country and over our world? As long as we are polarized and exclusionary, as long as we are divided and factious, we will be working at cross purposes to the purposes of Christ. And unfortunately, far too many in the church are doing exactly that all of the time. I would encourage you guys, just if you wonder, if you ever wonder hypothetically, could I possibly be working at cross purposes to the purposes of Christ in, in, that wants to make one new humanity out of the two? I wonder, do I contribute to that at all? Um, I suggest do an inventory, right? Get, take a little, uh, um, what's it called? Like an audit, right? Do a little audit of like, your, your last like, six months on Facebook. Or better, get like an outside like, third party to audit your Facebook posts and just see... How many times do I post things that actually feed division or do I post things that that celebrate God creating one new humanity? As long as we are polarized and exclusionary, we'll be working at cross purposes to Christ. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He put to death their hostility. And this is the thing. What God intended for Israel and the Gentiles, this is what Paul is talking about, right? He's talking about Israel and the Gentiles. What God intended for Israel and the Gentiles, He intends for all of humanity. This is what we have to ask ourselves, right? We could very well sit here right now and go, "Okay, well, that's good. God did that, right? He brought like Jews and Gentiles together. There we go, right?" But did God's purposes for unity stop there? Does this mean do we do we really believe that maybe God is fine with all other polarization, with all other exclusionary attitudes? with all other factiousness and division in the world? Is God okay with the rest of that? Or does he aim to heal all of it? Because as soon as we heal the like Jewish and Gentile situation, right? even in the scriptures, you read it, there quickly comes along other reasons to be divided. There comes along real quick other reasons to be polarized in us, them, and what's mine is mine. Now, a new singular humanity... This is, I think, part of the beauty of it, right? And this is all through the scriptures, too. But a new singular humanity doesn't mean homogeneity, right? Or to put it another way, um, unity does not mean uniformity, right? Us being, coming, one humanity doesn't mean that we all have to look the same. It doesn't mean that we erase our racial and cultural distinctives, right? Right? Even within the context, Paul was basically like, and this came up in Galatians and other places, and it's like, well, great, man. If you guys are circumcised, like, keep being circumcised. If you're not circumcised, like, don't feel compelled to do that, right? If you want to keep doing this for your kids, do it. If you guys don't want to do it with your kids, like, don't do it. You can maintain your distinctiveness. You should maintain your distinctiveness. Our distinctiveness coming together as one is actually a witness for Christ, It's actually a witness and a picture of what it is he's doing. We don't don't erase our racial and cultural distinctives. It doesn't mean that we all talk and look and act and live and worship the same. That's what empire does, right? That's what power structures do. It's not what the church of Jesus is supposed to do. Um, There's a guy named Richard Twist. Anybody familiar with that name? You ought to be. I think, he's, I think he's an unsung hero in the Christian world in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, he was a Native American author and speaker. He was a member of the Sikangu Lakota Oyote tribe from South Dakota. Um, and again, was, and, and I'd say probably is through his writings, one of the most remarkably unique voices in Christian America. So much so, I think a lot of Christians sometimes don't quite know how to swallow it just because we're not used to hearing from, from a Native American who's following Jesus. Um, but he wrote this book called One Church, Many Tribes. Uh, I, love the, I love the subtitle Following Jesus, the Way God Made You, right? And he, re- he recounts this story in the book. He says So one afternoon, I asked one of my pastoral leaders how I was supposed to relate to my native culture as a Christian. I distinctly remember him opening the Bible he was carrying and reading from Galatians 3:28, where Paul wrote, "There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus." to which at this moment I'm like, "Yeah, good job." After reading the passage, This pastoral leader commented on how cultures should all blend together for us as Christians and then concluded, so Richard, don't worry about being Indian, just be like us. Don't worry about being Indian, just be like us. Right? I have so many words going through my head right now, none of which are appropriate, so I won't say them. Let me just say, like, we strongly disagree with that. Yes, to what Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. What he's meaning is that there's much more equality within those distinctives. There's much more equality within those distinctives than our humanity usually attributes to them. We set those up and we create hierarchies. We create power structures. We subjugate others. We force them to follow our ways, our customs, our laws, our our values, whatever. But the heart of the gospel is to celebrate those distinctives even as God is making one new humanity. Follow Jesus the way God made you. I think this is a good word for some of us today, right? Like, be comfortable in your own skin. And that can take some work. That can take some work. Whether you're white or black, if you're brown, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're a Democrat living in the deep south, if you're a non-golfer living in Augusta, Right, like, whatever it is, it might take some work for you to become comfortable in your own skin, but do it. And then welcome others to be comfortable in their own skin as well, because this is how Christ welcomes every single one of us. When we read in the Psalms, right, that when I was in my mother's womb, you formed me, I am beautifully and wonderfully made. That means all the differences, all the things. Now, again, the sad truth is that often the church is guilty of working at cross purposes to Christ. So, guys, don't be divisive. Don't keep hostility alive. Don't try to resurrect what Christ has put to death. If he put to death the hostility, that dividing wall, let it stay dead. So then why should I feel fine about all this? Here's our third question. If it's the end of the world as we know it, why should I feel fine about all this? First of all, if you don't feel fine about all of this, um, if any of this makes you feel like unsettled or nervous, or maybe maybe that's just an indication, <clears throat> maybe that's an indication that you're living against the grain of the kingdom. Uh, take that as an opportunity to repent. I don't have much more to say about that. But here's the thing: the reason to feel fine is that the good news keeps getting better. As if that's not good enough, okay, God is making one new humanity out of the two. It doesn't stop with that new humanity. As Paul concludes by saying, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> the purposes of a single new humanity is not an end in and of itself. The world as we know it is polarized and exclusionary, so Christ came to form a single new humanity for God to live with. Here's how Paul wraps all this up. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, right? And he talks. He gets into this building metaphor, and he says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Notice how many of these references in these last few verses here um, have to do with like presence and nearness and belonging. He talks about access to the father, this family relationship, fellow citizens with God's people. Remember, you used to not be allowed to be citizens, but now you are. There's this, there's a political relationship. Members of his household, this is bigger than just immediate family. There's this like social relationship that Paul's referring to in their culture. He he calls them a holy temple. There's this this now spiritual relationship. Paul, he takes takes one of the central symbols of Judaism, the temple, and he completely turns it inside out. He completely turns it inside out. Here's here's what N.T. Wright says as we wrap up. This is what N.T. Wright says about this. He writes that the temple in Jerusalem was not only the religious heart of the nation and the place of pilgrimage of Jews throughout the world, it was also the political, social, musical, and cultural heart of Jerusalem, as well as just this place of celebration and feasting. The reason for all this was, of course, that Israel's God, Yahweh, had promised to live there. This was the whole idea with the temple. It was the center of music and culture and feasting and prayer and worship and all these things, because God had promised to live there. It was, he goes on to say, it was, many people believed, the place where heaven and earth met. This is what they believed about the temple. And so that, this, the dramatic and like world-shifting point that Paul is making here is that God's place of residence. The political, social, cultural heart of his people, the place where heaven meets earth is now the people themselves. And here's the thing. He can only do that. He only wants to do that if that people is actually diverse and distinct and beautiful. Why don't you stand with me? As we worship today, guys, think about this. As we gather to worship, We are God's temple. We are this place where his spirit already dwells and we experience this tangibly in musical worship together that his presence comes in powerful ways. And I think sometimes in direct proportion to how unified we are. To put it like a negative way, I think there's like an inverse relationship to to, to how polarized we are and how much we experience God's presence. The more that we can welcome one another in all of our differences, the more we are able to welcome God's presence in us and among us. Won't you pray with me? Jesus, for the sake of our own selves, And for the sake of all of those in the world who who are desperately in need of your presence, God, would you make one new humanity out of the two? God, would you forgive us as your church for the ways in which we contribute to division, to polarization, to being exclusive, forgive us, God, for for wanting to have just kind of single types of bricks that we're building a temple out of, when you delight in a temple that is made of a rich tapestry of stone, where, like we see in the end in Revelation, where every tribe and tongue and nation is worshiping in your presence. Jesus, we submit ourselves to your good purposes. And even now, as we worship you, would you make us one? Amen.